The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. Today's scripture reading is from Jonah 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lots singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business, and where are you from? What is your country, and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, What is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life, and don't charge us with innocent blood, for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by a great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The word of the Lord. Imagine with me that you're 10 years old. Uh, Some of you, uh, that's a long way back. Um, A few of you, you have to imagine up to 10, but but only a few. Imagine you're 10 years old and you lived 2,700 years ago, 2,700 years We'll say in the year 701 B.C., and you live in the Israelite town of Lachish. It's late at night. You overhear your parents whispering fearfully. They're discussing something, and you're not exactly sure what it is. You've never heard your father seem so frightened. Um, All of a sudden, you hear the announcement from your father's lips, the name Assyria. It rises above all the other whispers, all the other words. And you think to yourself, you're you're 10 years old, and you think, wait, Assyria? Isn't that the cruel, vicious people with, with the brutal army I've heard so much about? The army that would rip soldiers off the walls of cities and, and flay them to 
make the town acquiesce and be fearful. The, the same army that would take the leaders of the town and, and impale them to make an example to the town and, and to the other cities that would try to stand against this brutal army. Isn't this the people that would um, take women and children captive and enslave them and then deport them to other countries? Is, is that who my parents are, are speaking of? And, and then all of a sudden you, you snap back into the conversation and you begin to listen again to your parents and you hear your mother frightenedly say, and they are marching towards us now. What are we going to do? Well, sadly, something to this effect really did happen. It is a historical fiction. I don't know of any story exactly like this. But Lachish was a real city. Assyria is a, uh, a real empire that was incredibly brutal. And at one point in time, they swept across the Israelite region and they laid, laid brutal siege to this little town called Lachish. And you can, if you want, afterwards, you can look this up. There, there's something called the Lachish Relief, and it's basically Sennacherib, the, the emperor of Assyria at the time. His, it's a, it's um, uh, pictures of his exploits in war and how he overtook Lachish. And so the horror that you felt, even as I'm reading that and I'm trying to get us to take our minds to this place, what it would have felt like to be um, under siege like this, maybe you can resonate, and we should, with what Jonah might have felt whenever he was asked to, or, or demanded of the Lord, commanded, go preach to these people. Nineveh was the um, capital of Assyria, and we should resonate with Jonah in this. These are a wicked, wicked people, maybe, that the world has never seen like it. That's quite possible. And so we should resonate with Jonah, but here's what we can't do. We can't follow him in his disobedience, his unwillingness to share the gospel um, and God's saving power with these people, the Ninevites. We can't do it. That's why Jonah exists in the Bible. It's to show us the Lord's mercy for wicked, wicked people. But it's also as a negative story to go, don't be like this. Don't live your life like this. Jonah should have rejoiced in the mercy of God for sinners. But he can't. He's blinded, and we'll see that. Instead, he sinfully flees the presence of God. Here, here's where we're going. We're going to take a quick jet tour through the book as quickly as we can and see um, the, the backdrop of chapter 4, which is the main part of the sermon. So we'll land on chapter 4, which is kind of like act 4 of the story or of the uh, play, if you will. And it has four scenes in it, and we're going to... This is the note-taking section of the sermon, there'll be four different scenes, um, and we'll kind of outline that and, and look at that, and then finally we'll wrap up with three takeaways. So look at Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Margaret has already read this, but look at uh, verse 2. Jonah's told, get up, one thing, go, a second thing, and then preach against this city because its evil has come up before the Lord. It goes on, he, he, he disobeys in the exact opposite direction. That's the point. He does get up and he goes the opposite direction. There's, there's a physical nature to this book. And so Jonah gets up, he flees to Tarshish, which is like south. So there's this downward, you may have noticed it, but 
the, the author wants you to see this downward spiral, down, 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 that Jonah goes. He goes in the opposite direction of what God expects and demands of him. And so he goes south, and then Tarshish is west as far as he can get away from Nineveh, and that's where he's headed. But not only does he go down, he gets in this boat, and he goes down into the bottom of the boat, and when he gets to the bottom of the boat, he's awakened, and then eventually these sailors throw him onto the sea, and he swims as far away from the presence of God as he can get. And when he has no energy left, he sinks as far as he can from God's presence. He is going down. And so the author wants you to see his spiritual life is mirrored by his physical position. He just keeps running as far as he can. You could say he sprints, he sails, he swims, and he sinks his way as far away from God's presence as he get, can get. And when he gets it, he hates it. He should have rejoiced, as we said, but he doesn't. He hates the mercy of God. He doesn't want to see God save Nineveh, and so he runs. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Um, I have to admit to you, this, this verse has captivated me for months now, actually. I was tempted to preach this entire sermon on this verse alone, but I think chapter 4 will be more useful to us. But if you notice, in his downward descent, God keeps chasing him down. And so I, I think I have been you know, just blown away as God pursues Jonah to then look and see that how he pursues me. And I want you to look at this little preposition in the, in the verse, at the beginning of the verse, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. So just two letters, T and O. And all of the heart of God is wrapped up in these little two letters. God doesn't appoint the fish to destroy Jonah. God doesn't appoint the fish to bite Jonah in half. He swallows Jonah. This, this little word. In Jonah's rebellion, God shows up with mercy. This is the heart of God. Jonah is at the bottom, the ocean bottom, in fact, of his rebellion, this downward descent, and the Lord would go to such depths to kindly conquer Jonah's rebel heart that a, sending a colossal fish is not out of the bounds to go get him. It, we, we should, I mean, if you get hung up on, can a, can a man live in a fish for three days or not? That should be difficult to you. We believe in the resurrection. Okay. The point is that, that God goes and gets Jonah in the most unlikely way possible. And when it should have said, and God appointed a fish to destroy Jonah just to finish him off, good riddance, he doesn't. He swallows him quite literally in his mercy. Jonah is helpless. He's flailing his last energies, burning his last calories, choking, drowning, gasping for his last, and the Lord yet comes for him. 
Anybody been there? Jonah hates God, and yet he comes. Our heavenly father, Jonah's heavenly father, he steps down off his throne, as it were, and he runs Jonah down. He swims him down. He relentlessly pursues him, and he never stops, and he won't stop pursuing you. If he has set his love on you, he will not stop. And that's what Jonah is teaching us in this story. Jonah's in such a state, we see at the end of this verse, he's weakened by fatigue, and he can't fight God's mercy anymore, and God swallows him up. He overtakes him in his mercy. Instead of drowning him in judgment, what he deserved and what you would think as the reader you would see, he swallows him in mercy. Look at chapter 2. This unlikely, uh, miraculous aquatic vehicle, a submarine with gills, if you will, He's, he's swallowed up. Look at verse two or verse one, excuse me. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. Jonah confesses in, in verse 3 that, God, you threw me into the depths of the sea, into the heart of the seas. And what we see as the story unfolds is really what's more happening is that Jonah's been thrown into the heart of God. And the Ninevites are thrown into the heart of God. And the sailors are thrown into the heart of God. It just happens over and over again. And so at this point in the story, Jonah's still confused. He's sitting in the mercy and the kindness of God, and he still doesn't quite see it. And Jonah prays and God hears and rescues him unworthy as he is. Look at chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. We see Jonah's confusion more here. He confesses his weakness. He confesses that God overtook him, but he doesn't confess that he's sinful. He does not repent. That's what chapter 2 is teaching us. Look at what he says. In verse 8 of chapter 2, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's got this kind of prophet squint to him. He still doesn't get it. He has this blindness over him according to his self-righteousness. And he goes, I'm not like those sailors back there. Remember, he's not in the story when, when they're saved. He's gone. I'm not like them back there. I'm not like Nineveh, but I will complete my vow. I will do this for you. I'm in. You, you, I acquiesce. I'm, I'm in. So he can't see his sin at this point. Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The word of the Lord, chapter 3, came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. So in verse 10 of chapter 2, Jonah is humbled by God. Um, 
we see that, uh, you know, you, you get spit up on a shore somewhere with fish vomit all around you. It's just humbling, right? I mean, was he bleached out? Like, what would that have been like? But Jonah still doesn't get it. I mean, this is the ultimate humbler, and he still doesn't get it. He dries himself off physically um, from this fish vomit, it would seem. He walks the miles it takes to get to Nineveh, but he is soaked in self-righteousness. He still sees himself as fundamentally different than the Ninevites, and we see that. So Jonah 2.0 is no greater version of Jonah. He's still characterized by hatred for these Ninevites, and if you're keeping score at this point in the story, Jonah, merciless. The Ninevites, still merciless. God, bottomless mercy. Depthless mercy. Deeper than the sea. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. So, (laughs) miracle of miracles, they repent. At the heart of this story is that God's heart is merciful. That, that is the, that's the point of the book. That's the overarching thing. But at the heart of God's mercy, we see a God who is so willing to, at the, at the mere preaching of a message, to save people with century upon century upon century of wickedness. And so we see that, that God has miracle-working power in the gospel I mean, it's a, it's a lesson to me even as I'm preaching this morning. God does things with his word. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. God saw their actions, and we'll read all the way through the book here. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Notice that Jonah doesn't answer here. Verse 5, Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord got appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, You cared about the plant which you did not labor over 
and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left. Probably the most awkward ending of any book in the Bible. I've tried to think of a more awkward ending, and I can't think of one. It just fizzles out like that. That's it. Um, What we see is Jonah should have rejoiced in the Lord's mercy for the lost peoples of Nineveh. That's clear. Um, But he doesn't. He doesn't celebrate God's zeal to recover his image so firmly stamped on these Ninevites. He doesn't care about that at all. Um, he, He ends this book. We end this book with with Jonah's heart being colder than the Pharisees in the New Testament. I mean, it's just just awkward. That's it. C.S. Lewis, he wrote in in a book called The Weight of Glory, he wrote this. The dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Lewis is, of course, speaking of the the stunning worth of even a single soul. And we see in John chapter 5 that Jesus says, he heightens the game from what Jonah says here, but in John 5, Jesus says that one day at the end, All the graves will will burst forth with life and that people will be resurrected to one of two ends, destruction, darkness, death, or life and light. And, And what happens in John 5 is he says both will be given resurrected bodies. One will be resurrected with a body uniquely fit. This is something we don't talk about in the church very much. This body uniquely fit to endure destruction for eternity. To die and die and die and be in conscious torment, but to never fully die. And then, on the other end, he says, those who put their trust in Christ will be resurrected with a glorious spiritual, physical body. Not exactly sure what what that is yet. And, and Lewis is saying, you'd be, if you saw them now, you'd almost be tempted to worship them because you'd never seen anything like it. He goes on, he says, all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations, heaven or hell. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. That's true. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations. But it is immortals who we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. The stunning worth of a single soul. That's what Lewis is getting at. And Jonah had lost sight of this. He was blinded by his self-righteousness, and in chapter 4, that is on full display. Look at this first scene. So this is the fourth act here, scene 1. 
You could title it the definition of God. So scene one, the definition of God. Look at verse two of chapter four. He prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. In other words, in effect, I knew you were like this. I can't stand it. You can't help yourself, God. You're always saving people. Jonah can't live in a world, or he doesn't want to live in the world, he makes that abundantly clear, where wicked people get off the hook. He's blinded. In others' sins, the Ninevites, namely, he can't see himself at all. And so Jonah misses the very definition of God. The very thing that he confesses with his mouth, he misses that he is the recipient of. He misses the heart of God, in other words. And he's been thrown into it with the fish, with the sailors, with the Ninevites. Look at this second scene. This is verses 5 through 7, and you could name this scene Jonah's twisted heart. Jonah's twisted heart. Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. So Jonah's twisted heart. What does he want? Jonah wants to grab a bag of popcorn and, and watch Nineveh burn. That's basically what he wants. He, he leaves the city because he's like, who knows? Maybe I'll see some pyrotechnics. Like maybe, maybe there's some fireworks that are still coming. Maybe God will change his mind. You know, maybe, maybe something great will happen here. What, what we think is probably happening, what I think, <clears throat> is that he thinks God's going to show up like Sodom and Gomorrah. He'd read at least a chapter 19 of Genesis at this point. And he's like, that's what I want to see. I'm going to go preach against this city. And then he sees that they repent, and he's like, I knew you were like this. And so he probably failed to read as far as Deuteronomy. Because if he had read to Deuteronomy, he would have seen chapter 7, 7 through 8, which is Moses, and he's speaking about why God chose the Israelites. It reads like this. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you meaning Israel, or Jonah included in that. Not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, Jonah, you're not good. You're not prettier than the next guy. <laughs> You're not handsome. You're not strong. There's nothing special about you except me, is what Deuteronomy 7 is teaching us. And Jonah somehow thought that he was cut from a different moral cloth than the Ninevites. And I wonder if you're tempted to do the same thing. He hates what God's doing. He can't stand the mercy. And all the while, he is sitting on the, uh, you know, the platform as a recipient of God's mercy. You're kind of like LeBron James just going, 
You see the fish? Like, don't you remember any of it? And he can't see it. And the Lord just keeps heaping up kindness, even these object lessons. You know, he's shading his head. And, and Jonah's just blinded by his self-righteousness. This is probably a, a, a vine of some sort, and it would have grown up over quickly, and he's heaping up these kindnesses on him at this point in the story. And Jonah is just heaping up hatred for the Lord and for the Ninevites, and it's just getting worse and worse. Look at this third scene, verses 8 and 9. This is Jonah's fickle heart. Jonah's fickle heart. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. This is a, an adult temper tantrum if there ever was one. And God's mercy, we see, doesn't just reach down to, to swallow up Nineveh types, types, druggy in our culture, murderous, sexually immoral types. No, what, what you see here is even after the fish, he's still dishing out mercy for Jonah, the prophet types. The button-up types, the professionals, the respectables, the suburbanites, the soccer moms. That's Jonah's people. And God's still pursuing him all the way to the end. And how embarrassing. This is the last words you hear from Jonah in the scriptures. I'm angry. I'm, I'm angry enough to die at your mercy. I hate that you save people. That's, that's embarrassing. That's the last thing that you hear of him until you hear from the greater Jonah. More about that at the end. Did you notice how everything in this story, we're we're at the end, everything in here and everybody obeys God except Jonah? Let's catalog it for a moment. The waves in chapter 1, they obey the Lord. The wind obeys the Lord. The lot falls on Jonah and obeys the Lord. The sailors show obedience as fear overcomes them. They also throw Jonah overboard at the word of the prophet of God. They obey God twice. The fish obeys the Lord by swallowing Jonah just at the appointed time and then promptly spitting him out at just the appointed time. The fish obeys the Lord. The Ninevites, they repent and obey at the mere preaching of the word of the Lord. They obey God. The plant obeys the Lord. It grows up at the right time. It withers right at the right time. The worm obeys by attacking the plant at just the right time. The sun and the east wind beat down on Jonah and his bald head right at the same time, at the right time. Everything and everyone obeys God except Jonah. And yet, God keeps on pursuing him. Jonah's fickle, he's twisted, he's disobedient, and God still comes for him. Fourth scene. The Lord's merciful heart. The Lord's merciful heart. Verses 10 and 11. So the Lord responds to Jonah. You cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 100 
and 20,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. In chapter 2, what we see is that Jonah confesses that he's been thrown into the heart of the sea, and we've already talked about this, but this whole story is like this epic voyage into the heart of God, and Jonah misses it all the way to the end, and it leaves you on this kind of cliffhanger of like, does he get it or does he not? And it's intentional, because we're seeing that, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't delight in the heart of God the way that we're supposed to. It, it's left on this cliffhanger because he's saying, it's just obvious. He's a negative example. You're supposed to do the opposite of what he does. You're supposed to celebrate that God goes to get druggy, adulterous types. That's the heart of God. And not only that, but he goes and he gets uh, buttoned up respectable types. He delights to save the broken, the wicked, the defenseless, the unclean, the adulterers, the rapists. That's God. He's too merciful for you. The Ninevites had lost their way morally. They couldn't tell from right from wrong. That's his point with this left and right thing. And in effect, the Lord is saying to Jonah, these Ninevites, Jonah, have been victimized by their sin long enough don't you see? You view them only as making others victim, but I see what sin has done to them and how it's ravaged them. And it's, it's long enough. I've set my heart on them and I'm going to get them. So get on board, pun intended. And that's the end of it. We hear nothing else from Jonah. What, are some, what do we do with this? There's a couple takeaways. First one's this. There's a Jonah in all of us. There's a Jonah in all of us. This book, you may have picked up on it, it's really a satire. So Jonah is meant to be a mirror for us. You get to the end of the book, and you're pointing at him, and then you realize the finger is pointing at you. And so use Jonah like a mirror. Who, who do you think is beyond God? Is, do they register as Nineveh, or do they register as Jonah? Either one. God's mercy is so bottomless that it swallows up everybody in this story. Second thing is this. Well, on that, get that person in your mind. Who's beyond Jesus? Whatever it looks like. They're too religious to think they could get saved because they already think they're saved, and you know they're not. Or they're Nineveh, and you're like, man, they're like, they come from a bad family. They are bad, and God ain't getting them. Get that person in your mind and share the gospel with them. Second thing is this, really simple. Obey God's word, right? Let's not outsmart the Bible. It never turns out well to be disobedient. If, if God can go get Jonah with a fish, in the middle of the ocean, at the right appointed time, I bet you he could send one like up the Missouri River to go get you. So I just be, try to obey the Lord. All right, moving on. The third thing, takeaway, is that the true, better, and greater Jonah has come. The true, better, and greater Jonah has come. In verse 9, we see Jonah's last words are, I'm angry enough to die. That's the last thing you hear from Jonah until Jesus 
and the New Testament, you open up the Bible to the New Testament, and he says, I'm the greater Jonah, meaning I'm everything Jonah was supposed to be. Consider a couple parallels between Jonah and Jesus. Jonah hates Nineveh and responds with rage. Jesus loved Jerusalem and wept over her. Jonah delighted to preach destruction to Nineveh. Jesus delighted to preach forgiveness in his blood. Jonah is full up with sin, yet the Father mercifully spares him. Jesus had no sin, yet died like a sinner in order to deliver sinners like you and me. Jonah was in the belly of a fish and and figuratively arose from the heart of the seas after three days, thus foreshadowing the resurrection. Jesus got up out of the belly of the earth after three days and was the substance of resurrection. Behold your God. He's far greater than Jonah. Your salvation doesn't hinge on any prophet, least of all preacher like me. Taste and see that Jesus is good. He is in pursuit of you. If you don't know Christ this morning, the very fact that you're here is evidence that he's pursuing you. He's running you down just like he did Jonah. Turn from your sins. There's no good in them anyway. If you know in the quietness of your own heart, I'm not a Christian. I'm just sitting here. Turn to Christ. Repent and believe. I mean, he is what the, what the gospel says, what I've just, these patterns that I just showed you, is that Jesus dies on the cross in substitute of sinners like you, that you might repent, turn from your sin, and turn towards Christ, and he will make you new. He forgives sinners. That's his business. That's what he's doing. It's what glorifies him. And if you today are a Christian, then again, behold your God. He runs down rebellious prophets and swallows them with fish to deliver them. That's how he pursues you. Turn to him. He's gracious. He's merciful. Let me pray. Father, you are good. You are far more merciful than we ever imagined. There are more depths in this book yet that that I have not seen. (laughs) Help us to see that even in that little preposition too, your whole heart is wrapped up in that. That you delight to deliver sinners. Nineveh types, Jonah types, and that's everybody. Show us your heart. Thank you for your many common graces to us, even to hear a sermon like this, to to sing your praises this morning. I pray that you would turn uh, any heart in here this morning who, who is still fighting against your mercy, that you'd swallow them up in their fatigue just like you did Jonah. 
And those of us who we have turned to you, we are Christians, we are members of this church, that you would show us afresh that you're, you're a kind of God who runs down Jonah's. Lord, we love you and we want to love you more. We want to delight in you. In Jesus' name, amen.